I'm going to ask you to welcome to the stage Sarah Pope, who's the executive director of the Minokin Foundation, and she will introduce our speaker this afternoon. Sarah? Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here. We are pleased to host a second banner lecture. Uh, earlier one was given the beginning of October. Um, we want to thank Paul and his staff, Nelson Lankford, Graham Dozier, and Shauna Boomer for working with us on logistics and promotion for the event today. Um, for those of you who are new to Minokin, we are a historic site. We're located uh, just outside of Warsaw in Richmond County in the heart of the Northern Neck. Uh, it's a 500-acre national historic landmark built in 1769 for Francis Lightfoot Lee, who was known as Frank Lee to his contemporaries, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and his wife, Becky Taylor of Mount Airy. In the first lecture this month, Dr. John Coombs introduced us to the world in which Frank Lee was born. This was a world where land, slaves, and wealth based on tobacco trade were pursued in the first quarter of the 18th century by the planter oligarchy. It wasn't just for their, that generation's own economic success, but for the success of future lines of their family based on the laws of primogenitor. Uh, Frank Lee was born into this social system, which as Dr. Coombs told you was starting to crack in 1734. He was the fifth child and fourth son of Thomas Lee and Hannah Ludwell of Stratford Hall. And Frank's lot in life as a middle son led to the construction of Minokin by his father-in-law, John Taylor II. But Frank's wisdom, his courage, and relative power and wealth due to the family he was born into and married into were the springboard for his political career, which culminated in signing the Declaration. Later, Frank and Becky had a shared lot in life as a childless couple, and that left the future of Minokin somewhat vulnerable. In large part, because the couple had no children, their letters, their account books chronicling their everyday business and personal lives at Minokin, as well as, frankly, political writings were not saved. Um, sadly, Minokin did not fare as well as Stratford Hall or Mount Airy. About 1960, as many of you know, the house lay vacant, and it literally collapsed on itself. Before that happened, the family that owned it at the time did have the foresight to take out all of the beautiful paneling. The dining room, of course, is here at the Virginia Historical Society, upstairs in the Virginia, the Story of Virginia exhibit, and all of the, the rest of the paneling we have at the Minokin Foundation in Warsaw at our visitor center. Um, since the property was acquired in 1993, our trustees have consistently rejected the idea of restoring the house as a typical house museum. Um, instead, we're pursuing an innovative strategy to interpret the house by a combination of structural glass and important parts of the original fabric uh, to create an understanding of, of construction techniques, similar to the living man model from grade school where you could see inside the body, we're going to do a living building. And more on our project is out in the foyer, and I'm happy to talk to any of you about it afterwards. Um, so really, uh, archaeology and the study of landscape is going to hold the key to finding out more about Francis Lightfoot Lee, his life, um, his plantation, and the people that lived there before English colonization as well. So that brings us to today's lecture. We um, are honored that it's Virginia Archaeology Month, and we're pleased to introduce our consulting archaeologist, David Brown, who we've been working with since 2006, along with his business partner, Thane Harpole. We call them the Boy Wonders, and you'll see why when he gets up on stage. And because scant records exist on, Min on Minokin, as I said, archaeology is the key to our interpretation. I'll tell you a little bit about Dave, and then I'll get off the stage. David uh, received his BA in anthropology from the College of William and Mary in 1996, and his MA in history, historical archaeology from the University of Massachusetts at Boston. David is pursuing his PhD at William & Mary, where his research includes the rise and fall of the plantation system in the New World, the interaction of native and colonial cultures in the 17th century, and African-American tenant farmers in 19th century Virginia. In addition, he's co-director with Thane Harpole, who I mentioned, 
of the Fairfield Foundation, a nonprofit archaeological and historical research group in Gloucester, Virginia. Uh, Thane and Dave were also founding members of the Werowacomico Research Group, of course, doing um, research at Powhatan's um, home. Um, so he helps start and co-owns data investigations, and wearing that hat works at Minokin as our on-staff archaeologist. So here's Dave. Thank you. The boy wonder thing used to work a lot better when I was a bit younger. Um, you're giving me my intro joke on a platter. Um, it's a little bit easier to call like more the bald wonder or balding wonder. Um, you may, some of you may have seen us uh, give a talk a few years back on the work that we're doing at Fairfield and where Wacomico. Um, there was a little bit less glare, um, but at this stage in my life, it's uh, wonderful to look back at all of these wonderful experiences that we've had, whether it's in this room, talking to people like yourself and sharing the passion that we have for history. And I say we a lot because I kind of imagine that Thane Harpole is standing next to me, um, silent as usual, but very much contributing to all that you see. Um, he and I have been working together for many, many years now, um, which is also a little depressing to think about because, uh, yes, it used to be uh, that we would be the boy wonders coming up on the stage. Um, but now I guess we have to grow up a little and uh, even wear a suit and tie from time to time. Um, the presentation I'm giving today is, is something that we feel as equally passionate about as the work that we do at Fairfield, the, we, the work that we do at Werewacomico. And we consider this to be just as equally significant, if not more so, because of the very presence of this building on this landscape. Uh, this landscape surrounding it, the feeling that you have when you walk on this plantation, the amazing sense of belonging when you get onto this property, when you have Sarah walking you down to the ruins, when uh, you have others sharing their passion for this, because as far away as it may seem, this place is really kind of at the heart of Virginia. And for us who love history, um, we know that it's the kind of place that it doesn't matter how far away it is, we're going to get there and we're going to see this, this amazing resource and it is going to change our lives. Um, the presentation I'm giving is uh, a lot of very, very cool photos of which I am probably not um, responsible for more than maybe a third. Um, and so I must uh, very much highlight some significant work done by others, some of them who are in this room um, not only on the words that I say, uh, the insight into this fantastic building, which I will not be speaking much about. Um, there are others who f know far more about the architecture of the building um, than I do, and I will, I will try to um, uh, be respectful of that knowledge that they have passed along. Uh, but there's some wonderful landscape architects and project participants who are helping bring this vision for Minokin to reality. Um, uh, Mikado and Silvetti, who had, had talked here before, um, as well as uh, Reed Hildenbrand, uh, cultural landscape architects. Um, and one of the ones that I'm most proud of is a, a recent graduate of the College of William & Mary, Ligon Brooks, who, uh, as an intern with the Minokin Foundation, did tremendous research into the enslaved Africans who lived here and their legacy, tracing them up into the modern day, locating their descendant populations, um, and really bringing that kind of typically untold story to the forefront which is really a key to this entire lecture, is that we're looking at a plantation here or a property or a building, I mean, you can divide it however you'd like, that just is so amazingly full of stories, stories that reach out and touch each and every one of us in a different and unique and, and passioned way that I am going to actually try to keep this to 45 minutes. Um, it may be the uh, greatest task, uh, greatest um, goal that I reach at the end of this, uh, besides perhaps only putting half of you to sleep. Um, but with the comfortable chairs, I won't blame you in the least, uh, especially if you're dreaming about the wonderfulness outside. It is a beautiful day, and so by keeping this short, hopefully we can all get back there, or at the very least into the exhibits uh, just outside the door. When we think about archaeology, when I think about archaeology, I think about the stories that I know. I think it's impossible for us to walk into a landscape like Minokin and not to think about the people who were there before us. But it's equally important to think about not only how they looked, what they looked like, how they acted, what they said, what they wrote, but also what and how we understand them today. Uh, the history that we learn in school comes along with us. And so as an archaeologist, I'm excited by not what the ground will tell me that contrasts that image, but how that completes these images. 
how it challenges us to look at the past in a way that reflects on ourselves. Um, I'm not a fan of reading slides, so uh, excuse me if I don't end up pointing out certain things along the way. Um, there will be, hopefully, time for questions at the end of this, and we can return, and I can answer certain things. Um, it is fantastic that we have Francis uh, Lightfoot Lee's uh, a tag that was uh, recovered from the site um, in, the light, in the early 1990s, uh, as well as you can see in the bottom left-hand corner of uh, a squirrel, a uh, symbol of the, I believe it's the Taylor family, not the Lee. Oh, my apologies. I'm going to be struck down. Um, I deal with mostly the Burrell family over in Gloucester, and they have a simple lion's claw, and it's easy to remember. But we also think about these buildings. Um, the people populate these spaces, and not just the Lees, but the enslaved Africans, the, the friends of the Lees who would visit and would be entertained there. And looking at an image like this, one of, I believe it's the earliest documented blueprint, if you will, of a building that was constructed in Virginia. And just like many of the blueprints today, obviously, not followed to the letter, but it shows that progression of idea, of thought, um, that inspiration that we bring with us. And even as you venture off into that landscape, and this is one of the best images I've seen to bring you who have not been there to the location, or for those who you have, to kind of highlight those elements that perhaps weren't visible because you didn't have your jetpack on at the time. Um, but you can see this dramatic computer-generated landscape and start to understand not only how it is situated, not only how it kind of evokes a certain sense of things, um, really the potential for what happens when these items return to the landscape and how it challenges you to see it. And I think everything, almost, almost everything comes back to drawings like these that were done by Habs in the 1930s and later, where you really just fall in love with an image of a building. And it's that first introduction to a large book of knowledge that just kind of continues to add page upon page every visit you take. Now, for those of you who have not been to Warsaw before and Minokin, which is the number one just to the left of Warsaw, um, this is a quick map on how to get there. Uh, I will put in a quick plug. They have a wonderful website at uh, minokin.org, so that will also provide you with everything you need to get there. And uh, they don't pay me by the visitor, but I do find great satisfaction in seeing the, um, the visitation go up. And there's a lot of stories, a lot of layers. Um, as an archaeologist, I'm used to using puns and other forms of comedy to get through the boring parts of lectures. Um, but in this case, I also have photos. Um, something that is always of great importance to me has been understanding that people that we are focused so much on, like the Lees, uh, like their tremendous importance to the birth of our country and to that tumultuous period at the Revolutionary War, were preceded, not just by their forefathers, but by indigenous groups like the Rappahannock Indians who put their own stamp on this landscape. And how as an archeologist, I have to ring true to each of those periods, each layer from the bottom up, talking about them and understanding the role that they played. Because as we look at a landscape rather than just a building, a landscape rather than just a space, um, we end up seeing how this landscape changes and is conceived of differently over time. Uh, I'm hoping that after the work that we're doing in the next few weeks and perhaps extended over the next year, we'll be able to talk in more detail about the indigenous cultures that were here at Minokin, um, not only up near the house where there is an amazingly well-preserved late woodland proto-historic site, but also closer down to Cat Point Creek, uh, often associated in historical documents with the Rappahannock Indian town, something that is going to bring great excitement and perhaps a future banner lecture series. Now, the other part of history at Minokin is that pre-Lee period, um, in some cases even pre-Taylor, where we talk about the fleets and we talk about the other early settlers of the 17th century. Uh, we tend to focus so much on uh, Frank and Rebecca and the Revolutionary War, which is by far the, the key element that should be focused on. Um, we have these other stories. Uh, we have this outlying quarter where Minokin is uh, essentially subservient over a period of different owners, but still a productive space um, it's still the location of a, a, a residence, not only of perhaps tenant farmers early on, but eventually enslaved Africans. And their story is important to understanding this landscape because it basically sets a stage for that initial foray by John Taylor uh, when he's initially looking into the design and the construction of the building and the reforming of this landscape. So there's that initial contrast between the known and the vision, the dream. And so you can get a sense here for a little bit more of that landscape. You can imagine yourself walking in the fields and looking down and seeing this plantation, eventually um, putting yourself in the position of John Taylor, 
putting yourself in the position of Frank and Becky when they are sitting at a spot and they're trying to describe to themselves what this place will look like one day. And essentially getting an understanding of this design uh, gives you a sense of how they start to compartmentalize space, how they divide up this plantation that was, in a sense to them, perhaps a blank slate uh, added onto uh, bit by bit by these... Um, much more than bits, these magnificent plantation homes, their dependencies, and how they modified the landscape around them. The story doesn't stop with the Lees. It doesn't even stop with the Lomaxes or the families that went and came after them. Uh, instead, the, the story doesn't even stop when the Minokan Foundation acquires the property. All of this is an important lesson for all of us as we go through and look at this important site to understand how not only a building suffers from time and decays and is a testimony to the people who live there, but also how to save one, how to bring it back to the public consciousness and how to integrate it back into the story of America that it is so much um, an interesting chapter of. I have to uh, give a special uh, shout out to uh, Graham Dozier for rescuing me from the horrors of the internet when I realized that I couldn't find a very crisp uh, image of this. And... Um, Without Indiana Jones, I probably wouldn't have a job. Um, it's not as exciting as this all the time, but it gets close. Um, luckily, we don't have to fight as many Nazis. Now, when Thane and myself were brought into this, we were asked to go ahead and to start looking at the archaeology. We were not the first archaeologists to come to the site. Um, wonderful archaeologists, Doug Sanford and his team from the University of Mary Washington came. Um, there were others who were helping out, uh, whether it's Dave Hazard at the Department of Historic Resources or uh, there's a few others, avocationals who came by, found artifacts, registered them with the state, shared them with the Minokan Foundation once they were there. And even relic hunters who had been on the property back before it was owned by the foundation, um, responsible for producing that uh, Francis Lee tag and the button with the squirrel. Um, these are stories through artifacts that we basically have helped Minokan become better stewards of, um, bringing our information to them. Uh, we we're asked to kind of expand on that. Let's learn more about these properties. And you can see there's a tremendous amount of area, and it's just uh, the tip of the iceberg for understanding what archaeology can tell us. And I'm just going to be talking shortly about uh, one small component of that, trying to repopulate a landscape, not just with people, but with buildings and activity and action, um, to see that change occur and how that change occurs over not just days, weeks, and months, but years and generations. I find it helps to stop talking for a moment, gives people a chance to focus. So you can see by the map put together here that you have a number of different archaeological sites situated across the landscape. This isn't the total excuse me, ahead of myself. This isn't the totality of the archaeology at Minokan but simply the first sets of surveys that covered mostly the area and agricultural field that kind of shows us where certain things were taking place. We know that as, as the years progress, we will learn more by expanding those surveys and looking in areas where the archaeology is exclusively below the surface and not simply sitting on the top after the plow went through the field or standing majestically like the sole sandstone chimney in the middle of the forest next to the tobacco road. That is... Um, this guy right here. Uh, there's just some wonderful little bits about Minokin, even beyond the house, which kind of tug on the imagination and ask you to wonder how this once was. When we came in, we said, all right, we'll take what's known and we'll expand from there. And all of these little red dots are what we call shovel tests. They're the tiniest of archaeological excursions, about a foot in diameter, going down into the sterile clay and recovering the artifacts or the detritus of everyday life. In some cases, it's as tiny as a fragment of brick or a fragment of stone from a chipped tool. Uh, in other cases, it is uh, several bags of oyster shell or sandstone or uh, other elements of the past where people have been discarding them, burying them beneath the ground or simply having the ground accumulate atop them. Uh, they are not far removed from where they were placed. And that's kind of the ace in the hole for an archaeologist, is knowing that place and space matched together with these artifacts to talk to us about time. Our focus had been predominantly around the house. And just to give you a sense of the landscape, as you are to visit, as you will, if you have not already, you'll come down this road, you'll take a left, you go to the visitor center, delightful, see the architectural collections and other wonderful things. 
come back after your tour and come down to the ruin. And, and around that ruin has been the focus of our work, if only to try to better understand how the space around the ruin changed. But then considering the ruin not simply as that small little acre or two acres between the dependencies, the manor house, and the amazing terraced gardens, but expanding out further to understand what's going along in the tree line, what's going on the edges before it drops off into the ravine, and ultimately the areas where we know that there were past buildings in the 19th and the 20th centuries, because those are part of our history too. It looks a lot like what you see in the bottom right-hand corner. It's usually in the winter, it's cold. And yes, your hands get very, very cold picking up tiny pieces, in some cases, of uh, clear or uh, milk glass. Um, surprisingly enough, hardly ever cuts us. I'd like to think that somebody's looking out for us up there. Um, in fact, we did find this quarter, and it's not just for scale, um, but you can see fragments of uh, wonderful pieces of pottery from the, seven, from the 18th and 19th centuries. And when you see this map here, we simply show where we found these pieces. As I talked about before, these, these pieces, when found in concentration, reflect where people deposited them. The trash disposal of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries of the prehistoric period wasn't one of landfills or carting trash off and far away. When you find a fragment of brick, a fragment of window glass, and a fragment of nail, your best bet is that someone had a building nearby. And you can take that evidence and start to talk about the logical progression of rebuilding that landscape in your mind. As I tell my students, when you think about it, what kinds of buildings on a plantation would have glass windows? The confrontation in your mind of think, well, you have brick out here, it just got out here by accident. No, it did not. These things represent activities and actions across history. And so what you see here in this map is just a series of different types of artifacts that are telling us a story. The squares are creamware, basically your early eight, sorry, your 1760s to the end of the 18th century ceramic. Um, and you can see them in these yellow squares. Hold on a second. Wait, yellow square, sorry. You can see them in the cream squares. Um, you see a later ceramic come in and replace it, something called pearlware. That comes in in the later 18th century and persists through the mid, almost the midpoint of the 19th century. And then finally is replaced by whiteware. And this is a tumultuous period in Minokin's history because you're seeing the end of the Taylor's, excuse me, the end of the Lee's occupation. You're seeing it transition into a different family member and eventually transition once again as it travels out of the family. And understanding how this plantation changes over that period is essential to us interpreting that landscape, teasing apart the slave quarters from the period of the Civil War from the slave quarters of the period of the Revolutionary War and understanding how that change between the two was really reflecting the changes in the lives of enslaved Africans throughout a very redefining period in our country's history. We also have the unique character of a place like Minokin that is made of so much natural material in a sense. The chop tank sandstone that is the heavy walls that this building was built from is naturally occurring in quarries nearby. When we start to find concentrations of it further down into the gullies, when we start to see little bits of it off into the fields, it begs the question of are these elements just drifting out there naturally from the soil below, or are these elements that are part of the construction that we don't know about, part of an outer building? Um, are they part of something more that we just don't see in the, records book, in the record books? As you can see here, the brick, the sand mortar, and the shell are relatively focused around one area, but these little outliers beg the question of what might be out there. Archaeological survey isn't the end all and the be all. Archaeological survey gives us a hint. It tells us where we might dig next. And it's that first step that helps us understand better how this plantation landscape evolved without the tremendous amount of time and energy necessary to go ahead and to fully excavate into a landscape like this. Uh, a hopeful part of the future, but one that takes time and planning. And in a preserved landscape like this, um, it does not need to happen before the bulldozer wipes it out or a road goes through. We have, in some cases, the benefit of time. Here you see just a series of other maps where we talk about these artifacts we found within these shovel tests. Knowing that they did not travel far from where they were deposited, in some cases it's simply talking more and more about this line extending north from the house whether it be fragments of window glass, whether it be types of different nails, they're talking about buildings and talking about how this landscape was being used. And our initial impression is that what we have in this area directly north of the house is a tremendous number of quarters, slave quarters. 
those that are basically on display as people would enter into the plantation, posing the question, if the quarters are here, are they simply shunted to the side of the ravine so as to maximize the amount of agricultural space that's available for use to put under crop? Or perhaps is there a road here coming to the north that is basically being used to display the amount of enslaved laborers, the, the wealth necessary in order to own these people and to put them to task um, for peers and others who might be interested in better understanding the status of Francis Lightfoot Lee and his family. One of our goals, as I was mentioning before, um, is to continue this survey here and along the Tobacco Road. Um, there's a series of roads back here, including that uh, tenant farmer building, which is tentatively dated to the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, we're hoping to better understand what's going on here before they uh, basically revitalize this road so as to provide access to Cat Point Creek for people who are kayaking and for people who are uh, basically just looking to see that wonderful landscape, that nearly as close to indigenous landscape as perhaps we have in this region. One of the advantages of the past archeology span um, was that we do get a glimpse of the life of enslaved Africans at Minokin during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, as a preliminary location for the, for the visitor center, obviously that was built over here, um, the archeology span that was done gives us that first quick glimpse into the footprints of earthfast buildings or pier-set buildings, possibly even ground-laid sealed buildings, um, possibly like what you see here. This is an illustration shamelessly robbed from Barbara Heath's amazing book on Poplar Forest, uh, a wonderful property that you should all see, but that definitely gives you the sense of um, interpretation, size, and mass without giving you a whole lot of uh, unique character that must define it to a specific location. Um, the artifacts that you see here were recovered from the excavation, although the excavation did not excavate to any significant degree, some would say, into the features that you see here. Um, all of this is preserved, well, say 95% of it is preserved. Um, rather than build on top of it, rather than do the archeology, span as preservation is close to the heart of Minokin, they simply covered it back over and they'll use the information they have so far, perhaps to lead future archeological excavations, um, but at some point when the funding and the timing is appropriate. One of the wonderful, cool, aspects of this revealed a certain orientation between elements on the landscape. And for architectural historians and landscape historians and archeologists, we love to see patterns, not just concentrations of artifacts and fields, but we like to see commonalities between things. We like to understand things as man's attempt to either mix seamlessly with the environment around them or to perhaps dominate that environment, perhaps find some kind of equilibrium in between to build that landscape up in our minds and to understand how people in the past interacted with that. And you can see here with the two structures, these are subfloor pits or root cellars that basically are oriented beneath the floorboards and between the floor, jo floor joists at the bottoms of these buildings kept as uh, footlockers or um, as cold storage. Uh, you can see the orientation of them in a contrast or in perpendicular nature to the ditch that separated the two of them. And so for us, it's fascinating to see this initial glimpse into how this was constructed, who might have constructed it, and what it might mean when you see, in contrast, a secondary building or perhaps a later building coming in at a different angle. Is this a change in how they organize labor on the landscape, or is this simply the loss of a, one building and construction of a second in a more expedient sense uh, to satisfy the needs of the time? The rolling roads connect us not just from the house to the water, but through this entire landscape of hills and ravines and springs all the way down to Cat Point Creek. And for us, for the people interpreting Minokin, this is essential to understanding the environmental connection between house and the Lee family, the surrounding landscape, the people who came along with them, the people who were sold with this property, and eventually the people who came to rescue it. For us to understand these rolling roads, which are perhaps the most dramatic aspect of this landscape outside of the house itself, um, is one that is a display piece that few people have a, a full knowledge of when they're traveling through Virginia's countryside. These roads are important as the thoroughfares for goods traveling from field to port. Uh, in this case, the port down at Minokin Landing. You can tell that in this case, while much of the coastal plain of Virginia is a relatively flat landscape, we have a significant drop-off. And over time, this drop-off, this change in elevation, has shifted from one use to another, 
kind of more reflecting the economy of the day, but also the intensive use of this landscape. And we have suggestions as to what this landscape and how this landscape changed by looking at the maps and other documents available. Archaeology is an amazing way to go into a landscape and learn more, but it is awfully cost prohibitive at times. If you can learn something from a map and then guide those excavations, guide that, that research, it helps us immeasurably. And one thing that seems to be of great significance, looking at this 1932 and then the later maps here, are the road systems that are developing. Because when we see road systems on maps, over time the amount of detail added to it doesn't necessarily correspond to time. You might have an earlier map that emits a road, a later map that adds it back in. And the thing I find most fascinating is the road coming from this intersection. Normally, if you were to visit Minokin today, you would be coming down this road, come up to the visitor center, come back after the visitor center, coming back down here and seeing the ruin. What's interesting, though, is the road that comes off here. It comes over, wraps back around through here, and back up to this intersection. Now, it's completely missing, not completely, but mostly missing from this map a little bit earlier. And most of these are devised through aerial photography, so perhaps a heavy tree cover um, and not a lot of knowledge of on-the-ground situation may have led to it being omitted. Um, but assuming that this wasn't constructed specifically between the 30s and the 60s, you could conceivably have this road come in as your major thoroughfare into the plantation, heading directly south, perhaps not in this direction, but perhaps in this direction, just align those slave quarters that you saw represented so well by the archaeological remains that we found through our survey. Giving you a better image of this, even a topographic image, you can see how you would come from this intersection, take a tour through the creeks and the other areas here, most of them shallow, small bridges used to forge from one side to the other, coming up upon the field and coming to the house. These dramatic landscapes are uh, the results of a tremendous amount of research, and it's really innovative to see them displayed now as so much of the material um, that we're interpreting archaeologically is so much more meaningful when you bring it together with the landscape around it. And a lot of this information is out there for the public um, to use as people are continuously in the coastal plain of Virginia worrying about sea level rise but also hurricane storm surge. Uh, you can get most of this information now, sadly not for the Minokan area, they had to go through other means for this, but for the lower peninsula, the middle peninsula, you can get for free from the federal government. And this is uh, digital elevation models or um, very intensive elevation models that uh, almost break it down to about a foot's worth of accuracy. And so what you see here is not an exaggerated landscape, but you're seeing that Minokan house situated at the top and such a tremendous drop-off and a vista that just would have been one of the most inspiring ones you could see. Now imagine a, a fog, because I'm sure that you would see to the other side of Cat Point Creek at this point. Um, but in this case, it just, again, highlights this dramatic contrast that even when you're there today, as you're walking through the forest, it's hard to imagine. Now, one of the other things that we try to do when we look at the combination of the archaeology and the landscape is to better understand how people modified the landscape, perhaps not even leaving behind those material remains like little pieces of tobacco pipe stems or ceramics. In this case, the terracing around Minokin is, well, Minokin is best known for its terracing above almost as much as it's known for its architecture. And the complex series of squares that you see here are different levels that were revealed through the topographic survey. And so as you can see, there is this system that not only comes down to the bottom here, but seems to wrap around the building and extend even further to the north, giving you a sense that this was a more complete landscape than just one vista off the south side of the building. And instead, it was a true complete landscape, one that extended 360 degrees, one that involved as much reaching out as reaching in. There are many others who have been putting together these graphics, so I'm going to give you, in a sense, a preview uh, and try not to take too much of their thunder. Um, in this case, you see these wonderful four-court dependencies and the main house, and you see a lot of very difficult-to-read lines because this is not, a, uh, not the best graphic for this room. But as you start to put together the flat and level spaces that you see here, relatively flat, relatively level, you can start seeing a lot of right angles, and these right angles are matching together in a somewhat regimented way to a point where you can almost establish a grid, a system that someone used in order to design and to place over this landscape 
a series of, of logical progressions, one that will only be bettered by intensive archaeological research to understand how each of these spaces were used. Uh, there's a tremendous amount we can learn from being in libraries and looking at pattern books and talking to other landscape historians who have seen precedent for gardens like these, contemporary gardens, across the United States even. Um, but in the contexts of each of these level areas, the science of archaeology has matured to such an extent that we can help identify through planting holes, phytolith analysis, pollen analysis, not only how the construction progressed, how they took down the trees, how they replaced them with others, how natural or local growth kind of inundated the area, but also the types of plantings in specific locations. And perhaps even the progression as one would have been guided through as much by the natural environment as by Francis, uh, excuse me, Frank and Becky. Uh, this debate over how this evolved, how it changed, is going to be something of great fascination for anyone involved with Minokin, because these initial ideas will lead to a discussion not only of how much this reflects John Taylor or how much this reflects Frank and Becky, but then how much the world around us has modified these landscapes over the subsequent years that we've had at Minokin, the, the degradation of the building, the agricultural enterprise that has been successful around it through the 19th century, um, but also just the way that Mother Nature works. As an archaeologist, I end up fighting with Mother Nature a lot, perhaps not as much as Frank and Becky did, but in my context, uh, going and looking at how Mother Nature has changed things definitely makes interpretation more difficult. But all that more satisfying when you see that common struggle between what they had to deal with in order to create these amazing landscapes and what we have to deal with in order to try to find out something more about them. And so amazingly, I may have actually kept on time with enough time for perhaps a few questions. Um, again, this is a subject that I could talk on ad nauseum, um, hopefully not with the same effect, though. Um, this is a, something very near and dear to my heart, and I've shared a lot of information today and probably done it quite poorly that other people have started to develop. I'm hoping what that does is it gets you interested in Minokin like I was. It helps get you connected in a way that you want to come not only visit the site, but stay in touch with them and understand how this discussion evolves. We see these terraces, they are of great curiosity to us, but perhaps in the future they will be planted. Perhaps we'll see the, the, the struggle to find out how they were planted, who was planting them, what they were planted in, and to be able to stand in the middle of those terraces and appreciate how much work has gone into recreating this experience that would be once in a lifetime. Thank you very much. or they will chastise me. Um, this is on video, and I think it's probably best if I stay in one place. Um, but I think we will have uh, uh, plenty to share as the survey continues, um, and, and particularly at that time, we'll be in the field making discoveries, and we hope all of you or any of you who are interested can come out and to see us there. Now, there are some questions. Yes? Yeah. You have spoken and, and are displaying some of the terraces that you discovered. Were there some other things in the findings that surprised you? I mean, the easy answer is to say that nothing surprises me anymore or that everything surprises me. Um, a famous archaeology once said that um, archaeology is a handmaiden to history. Um, that famous archaeologist is also probably as responsible as Indiana Jones for me having a job as anybody. Um, but what we like to think of it today is that archaeology basically is, is another library that opens up that we haven't had a chance to read the books from yet, that has so much information to it that Every time I walk out into, an into a, a plowed field and I find something in the ground, it challenges me to, to understand it better, to understand the people who put it there better. Um, specifically, I wasn't really surprised as much by the row of domestic artifacts from the late 18th and early 19th centuries that kind of lined the one side of the field going out. And that's not just because uh, Doug Sanford and the University of Mary Washington and some, some wonderful undergraduates who had been working there had found a lot of material there already. Um, what did surprise me was how much they seemed to be utilizing the periphery of these not quite level or close to sloping edges and how much that might tell us about how labor was reorganized, how um, the lives of enslaved Africans were not necessarily or 
not figuratively marginalized, but in some cases literally marginalized as they were pushed off to the edges and either the agricultural fields maximized or simply they found themselves being redefined as either the plantation ownership changed or simply the times changed from the Revolutionary War to the antebellum period to the Civil War. Um, the other thing that was surprising to us was uh, the locating of a small uh, group of mid-18th century artifacts that seemed to predate the manor house that was just to the east of the manor house in a nice, flat, level area, but surprisingly without as many prehistoric materials as we anticipated. Anytime you dig around the main house, you have an intact layer that escaped plowing for the most part, even plowing prior to the house's construction, that is just has this amazing group of, of not nearly complete, but um, large fragments of prehistoric ceramic and the ceramic dates to the late woodland and the contact period. Um, when we were digging in similar locations not too far away and we find early eight, sorry, mid 18th century material, it was kind of surprising to see that there wasn't a similar amount of Native American material there. Uh, to me, it suggested that we have something up at that top, but perhaps not Rappahannock Town. Perhaps that's located closer down to the water, perhaps on another portion of the property owned by the Minokan Foundation uh, or nearby. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Sorry. Hello. Thank you for this just really wonderful, wonderful presentation. Thank you. Am I correct uh, that you said you're getting your PhD thesis at William & Mary? Yes. Uh, now, can you tell us briefly, what is the topic of your PhD <laughs> thesis? It must be related to Monica. <laughs> um, oh, this is kind of evil, because uh, I think if my advisor was here right now, he'd be asking me, why aren't you working on your dissertation? <laughs> um, I'm fascinated by plantations, um, and the, the closest thing to my heart has been Fairfield Plantation, and that's the subject of my dissertation. Um, I'm looking predominantly at the late 17th through the early 18th century, and the kind of initial um, evidence that we're seeing there for early planned landscapes, designed landscapes, and how that matches with the kind of rethinking of slavery after Bacon's Rebellion, and uh, as you venture into a, a relative calm period in, in Virginia, um, or at least a period that a lot of people haven't written that much about. Um, we're looking at this period in Virginia's history between Bacon's Rebellion and the Revolutionary War, and as all of us know as we look into our own history books today, there is at least something important in almost every decade. Um, it's n Virginia is no different. Um, I'm fascinated by the 1690s, 1700s, 17 aughts, 17 teens, and I think there's a lot that's happening on plantations at that time as we're seeing a large number of enslaved Africans coming in, we're seeing landscapes falling completely under these designed uh, rules that the wealthiest of the wealthy are putting into play. And I think you really start to see a, a real connection that is forever inescapable between slavery and uh, this type of plantation landscape. Yes? Um, <clears throat> did you uh, find a well? Where did they get their water supply for the plantation? I noticed on one there was a spring um, I believe there is a spring, whoop, let me see if I can find that. There is a spring here. Um, there's also a well here, although the archeologists who evaluated that well, I don't think they did any digging, but they classified it as a late 19th or early 20th century well. Um, I find oftentimes that wells are, that have modern signs to them at the surface, sometimes have precursors, some older bases to them, if you will, um, but it's yet to be seen. Um, a number of these areas in Virginia will have spring-fed creeks, and they'll have spring houses, or they'll um, find ways to put wells closer up to the house. Um, at Fairfield, we've got a well that's built uh, 15 feet away from the manor house, about the closest as I've ever seen, um, right around 1694 when the house is built. In a place like Minokin, they have a much better understanding of the surroundings and how they want to use those spaces, so I don't think they would have a well as immediate close as that, but they also know that between the different tasks that the enslaved laborers have, or simply the desire to have potable water closer by, um, that they'll find some kind of compromise between what's naturally available and then uh, constructing a well in order to provide that water. Um, I do know that the, the over here on the maroon section of the upholstery, um, that's where the tenant farmer's house is. It's a strange location compared to the house and something we are anxious to see if it has any 18th century precedent or 19th century precedent to it, see if it's integrated in the landscape in some way to the, to the uh, Lee period. But we know there's a spring near there that uh, the archaeologists in 1985, when they were reevaluating the property, um, had mentioned when they were writing up their report. 
and I thought you said whale at first. And occasionally we do find fossils, so it's not unheard of. David, you mentioned that the paneling from that house is here and out there also. Are there other artifacts that are in the Lee family or the Taylor family from that house that are still there? Did they save any furniture, you know, glassware, anything like that out of that house? I would let Sarah speak to that in more detail, although I will say that um, this one has to qualify. Um, it is of the period of the late 18th century. Uh, it is a locket, and that is human hair. And when we were doing one of the extraction periods from the house, taking parts of the collapsed house back apart so that they could better identify where the pieces went and evaluate the foundation for eventual reconstruction, rehabilitation, re-envisioning, um, this was found not necessarily in the walls, but in the trash that had been left inside the house. And it's one of the most remarkable artifacts. If someone was to ask me what the 10 what are the five best, ten best artifacts you've ever found in your life? This would rank in the top ten easily, even though it was found by a gentleman who was next to me at the time. And that was quite frustrating. That happens to me a lot that, uh, these days. Mr. Brown, I'm curious. Yes. Did you, where were the Lee family buried, and did you find any slave cemetery? Um, you can't have a plantation in Virginia without somebody telling you where the slave cemetery is. Um, whether or not it's accurate is always a point of question. And at this point, while Minokin is fully into making sure to document oral history and references to any of these very important elements of a landscape, they're not necessarily interested in excavating them, and I wholly support that agenda. Um, we know that the Talos had a, a cemetery at Mount Airy, and uh, one of the re research reports I was reading had mentioned that perhaps uh, Francis and Rebecca were buried there. Okay. So uh, there may have been other burials that were here on the plantation at, at Minokin, but to the best of my knowledge, the location of the cemetery has disappeared. Waiting rediscovery. Yes? How, how much of the house and the dependencies remain? I haven't been there yet. I plan to go, but is there anything? You don't want to leave that for a surprise? No. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I say if you were to piece it all back together, um, and I was over here and Calder say this up above, I think 85% of it technically remains. But the material that's standing is sadly significantly less. Um, I think it is a vision when you get there. Um, you will see this just, it's, it's like kid in a candy store kind of excitement when you get to walk up to the house. And uh, the first and second and third floors, they're all intact. You can go into the basement now. And there's so much of it left that you truly do get a sense for the guts of this house and the kind of how it was put together and how it was falling apart. Um, the craftsmanship involved in the stone cutting and the brick masonry alone could be its own banner lecture series. Um, but in this case, uh, the front dependencies, uh, the west dependency has been gone for as long as anybody who was alive could remember it being gone. We know that, the, that it's still there, the foundations are still there. Um, and they're perfectly aligned with one another. They did some remarkable craftsmanship on this building and this complex. Uh, the East Dependency, the, there are two out of the four corners still standing, um, and both of them kind of creep up right to around the second story. Um, being, uh, ma'am, yes? Machatic? I have been told that the last owner of Minokin was approached by a group before the roof fell in, asking if they could buy it so they could stabilize it, and he flat out refused. Who was he, and how did he acquire it? We are far beyond the knowledge that I have, and luckily enough, we do have Sarah here who can um, hopefully answer. Uh, the Omohundro family owned Minokin from 1935 until 1994. Um, a gentleman named Stuart Omohundro was more or less a, um, a 
foster child of the couple that lived there, the Belfields, and they did not have children, and they left it to Stuart. And he lived in that house for uh, 25 years. You can imagine he lived there in one room without heat, and there was no plumbing. Um, and he died in 1960 without a will. And the house, in a nutshell, I'll just say it was tied up in an estate. And it was left up to his six or seven siblings to try to figure out what to do with it. Um, I can't tell you why they didn't want to sell it. I don't know. I know that Helen and Taylor Murphy, Helen's here in the audience, you know, as um, a newly married couple, asked the, the, the family if they would love to have bought that house um, since it's obviously associated with, with their family. And the family wouldn't do it. And so slowly it started to fall down. And it was finally the last living brother, Edgar, um, who gave it over to a, a foundation that was formed in 1994. No, stay up here. <laughs> They're anxious for knowledge. I will say one of the interesting things about the excavation inside the house, the extraction of the architectural materials, is that we're finding a lot of Mr. Omohundro's things. Um, we know he had batteries. Um, we try not to, uh, um, to assign all of the vulture poo to him. Um, that came in as well, but it is fascinating to see how much it was used and how much one day archaeologists will learn as much about Mr. Omohundro. And in a sense, if you think about Virginia history, we all have the things that speak closest to us, speak mostly to us. Um, but there are other subjects out there as an archaeologist, it's my kind of moral and ethical obligation to make sure I respect all periods. Uh, and so knowing that we have a great record of the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s occupation, perhaps by one of the least wealthy people in the community, and in such great contrast, living in a home of a signer of the Declaration of Independence, is something that perhaps we can all learn a little bit more from. <laughs>